from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. A part of finding our voices is being able to, to say to people, honestly, I'm not comfortable with how you're handling this. Or you said some things that made me a little uncomfortable. Uh, and then things have a way of, you know, settling down and going back to normal. There's psychological studies that show all those microaggressions that we experience have a profound impact on our emotional well-being. I'm Jeremy Goodwin. Ariva Martin is an award-winning civil rights attorney, Harvard Law School graduate, CNN legal analyst, and entrepreneur. She also founded the Los Angeles-based law firm Martin & Martin LLP, the autism nonprofit Special Needs Network, and the health technology company Butterfly Health, Inc. This past Thursday, she joined St. Louis on the air host Sarah Fenske before a live audience to discuss her new book, Awakening, Ladies, Leadership, and the Lies We've Been Told. This hour, we'll listen back to their conversation. So, Ariva, your new book <laughs> is called Awakening for a reason. It's yes. about the awakening you had. It's about the awakening that you feel the rest of us need to have. So take us back to your awakening. You write that it began around the time you were graduating from Harvard Law School. What happened at that point in your life? So for me, Sarah, my awakening did begin as I was graduating from law school and, and getting my first job in corporate America. And it was at that point that I started to realize that despite the hard work that I had done, despite the credentials, uh, and, you know, the accomplishments that I had as, as a law student, that there was something else in the workplace that was not about me and not about the work that I did, not about the credentials or the expertise that I had, but it was really about the system and a structure that was set up that I didn't have a lot of control over. So that was when I started to think about these issues, and they really became crystallized for me uh, as I navigated my career, and then more recently as we all went through this pandemic, had time to reflect, uh, saw this country respond to the murder of George Floyd, uh, start to have these uncomfortable conversations about structural and systemic racism, uh, and I saw so many parallels uh, between what happens to women uh, as what we know happened to people of color oftentimes, particularly people uh, you know, of Afri African-American people in particular. So I want to go back a little bit on your story because I feel like it's important to understand where you came from to this awakening and, and what ended up happening in your life that, that brought this home for you. You grew up right here in St. Louis. Yes, I grew up in Car Square Village Square. mostly, and then okay. I lived in the, the Jefferson Cass community uh, before, and then I lived briefly in the Jennings community before I went to college in Chicago. And you wrote that your grandmother and your godmother they kind of gave you this idea that if you worked really hard and if you were a good girl, that that was what it was going to take to sort of rise above what were, were pretty humble beginnings. Yeah, and, and that's one of the first lies. So I did an interview with a friend on a station, and he says, Ariva, this book should be 6,000 pages. Like, you know, you, there are a lot of lies beyond the five that women are told. And yes, this is not meant to be a comprehensive and dispositive list. It's just, you know, the things that were told to me most often. And yes, the hard work. I, I pride myself as a Midwesterner on being a really hard worker. So I'm not suggesting that hard work is not important, but 
there was a diff, there was a, an additional part to that story about hard work that wasn't told to me, and I think isn't told to many women. And it's those meetings that take place outside of work. It's those deals and those contracts and those negotiations and things that are happening while oftentimes women are at the office, head down, working hard, doing the work, and, and men often are in those closed door you know, sessions on the golf courses and those cigar bars in those other places and spaces. Uh, and so that was the part of it that wasn't told to me and I think is often not told to many women. And I think about your grandmother. I mean, she must have experienced some things and, and lived through some things in life where she had seen that hard work wasn't enough, but maybe she had hope that for you things would be different? Well, I, I think that's true, but I think growing up as an African-American woman, uh, girl, you know, we in our culture are told, we tell our children, our grandparents tell us we have to be twice as good, we have to work twice as hard, we have to be better. And, and that is, you know, an important part of our culture and our tradition. So, yes, that may have been what she experienced, but also what had been told to her through generations was, work hard, work hard. And so you were twice as good. I mean, you're the girl who went from Carr Square to Harvard Law School. I mean, that's that's tough. Yeah, I don't know if I was the girl that was twice as good. I'll just say I was the girl that had a lot of lucky breaks and definitely worked really hard, uh, took to heart those lessons and tried to apply them and, you know, had some incredible opportunities. So. And then you write in your book, a black woman with Harvard credentials is still a black woman. Yeah. What did that end up meaning in your case? That means that no matter how successful you are, that it doesn't matter. We, we hear President Obama talking about being racially profiled. Uh, we watched what happened to uh, First Lady Michelle Obama when she became our First Lady, all the vicious attacks that were directed towards her. So in this country, race matters, and it matters no matter how successful you are. So I, that's important. That's an important part of the book is talking about that intersectionality between gender and race. And so did you find yourself turned down for jobs that say a white man who went to Harvard, he might have just sailed right in? Oh, absolutely. I found myself being passed over for promotions when I was working in the corporate environment, watching white men uh, you know, be promoted and have opportunities that weren't afforded to me when I started my own practice. And I found that I was offered less money uh, for the same contracts that were being offered to my white counterparts uh, for more money. And I actually had a, a white woman friend of mine from Harvard tell me she was in-house at one of these big firms. And she said, Ariva, don't accept that fee because that's not what they pay the white lawyers that they hire to do the same work. Mm. They pay them a lot more and you need to you know, stand your ground and you know, demand that you be paid what they're paying. And did that demand work? I mean, you were no. able to push. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. no. I didn't get the work. Yeah. <laughs> no. so it doesn't that, always work out that way. <laughs> I was going to say, that's a tough thing. I mean, here yeah. you're given kind of this inside intelligence, like they're not valuing you enough. And so you come in and you come in confident. You've got to value me the way you'd value me if I was a white man or if I was even a, a white woman. And it doesn't work. No. What do you do with that then? Uh, you find other things that do work. I mean, and, and that's a part of, you know, finding your voice and standing up for yourself. It's not always going to work out. It's, you're not, you know, sacrifices were made for us to get where we are. So sometimes this involves some personal sacrifices. And one of the things that uh, I interviewed a lot of women for the book, 
And people often ask me, what was the recurring theme from the women? And, and that theme that I heard over and over again from women was that they wish when they were in a workplace where they experienced microaggressions or they were passed over or they were just you know, blatantly discriminated against, many said they just walked away quietly. Mm -hmm. They left. They didn't you know, file a lawsuit. They didn't make a complaint to HR. They didn't even as much, in some cases, tell their bosses. They just left. And they accepted what was given to them. And many regretted that. I would say most of them regretted that. They regretted that they didn't stand their ground, that they didn't speak up. And they recognized that it may not have changed things. They may not have, you know, gotten the promotion. They may not have gotten the raise. Uh, but they think it would have made a difference for someone else and created a better pathway for women who were going to, you know, come behind them. So I feel like for a lot of women, when there's that point where you don't get the promotion or you're not paid what you're worth, you start thinking, okay, it's me. Like, mm -hmm. I'm not good enough. Or frankly, the voice I hear in my head sometimes, I'm not likable enough. Um, did you struggle with that yourself, thinking, you, not realizing these bigger forces that were there? Yeah, absolutely. And now we call that the imposter syndrome, right? And, and women, you know, there are books written about it and, and people go to counseling about the imposter syndrome. Absolutely. I don't think anyone, uh, you know, man or woman who has achieved any level of success in their career hasn't had that moment where they felt like, I don't deserve it. I'm not good enough. I can't do it. So, yes, I, I've experienced those same feelings and thoughts and, and they can be crippling. You, you yeah. hear a lot of women say that, that they are absolutely uh, a detriment or uh, an impediment to them, you know, achieving success. So how do you push past that? How do you get to the point where you say, you know what, I'm not just going to stick around here and be undervalued. I'm going to go start my own firm. I believe in me. Yeah. And I don't want to uh, oversimplify that. And I don't want to suggest that every person is in a position to do that. And you, you would ask about, you know, feeling like you're not the right person or you're, you're not good enough. And a part of why I was writing this book, too, is to push back on that narrative. You, you think back to the early 2000s, there were a lot of books written, uh, Lean In, and books that you know followed Lean In, which told women that we needed to do more. We needed to work harder. We needed to be more strategic about our careers, take more assignments. And I wanted to shift that narrative because, as we all know, we already, women, we already work so hard. We already do so much. And I wanted the, the paradigm to shift so that women would know we are enough. And it's not us. You can't lean into a closed door. Uh, so a part of, I think, making that paradigm shift is, is you know, ex accepting that and embracing that. And, you know, having your awakening moment where you realize that it's not you that's the problem, but it's these cisgender, heteronormative, patriarchal system that has been developed that we are a part of. So you say in the book, you call out some lies, and one of the lies you call out is this idea that the system works, it just needs to be tweaked. Do you feel like a lot of women are stuck in that thought where we think, okay, this doesn't work, but if we could just get men to do a little bit more at home, or if we could just <laughs> fix this one thing, or just fix this other thing, how do you move from the little tweaks to saying, we need something so much bigger? Well, if we look at what we've done through, you know, over centuries and definitely, you know, decades, we've made little tweaks and, and look where we are. Statistically, I, I cite in the book, so women are the most educated demographic in the country. Black women in particular are the most educated. We go to college more, we graduate more, but it's not translating. So when you look at Fortune 500 companies, you look at CEOs in the C-suites, there are only 41 women who are CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. 
And of that 41, only three are African-American. So if you do the math, if we're the most educated people in the country, black women in particular, then why isn't there parity? Why don't you see you know, a proportionate number of women in C-suites or in those senior level positions? You know, it, it, the math isn't there. It's not translating. So that is, should be comfort for you that it's not you. Not you. <laughs> it's not yeah. you because you're doing the work, right? They tell us you go to school. That's going to be your ticket to upward mobility. That's how you, you know, you, you gain advancement in the workplace. So we're doing that. We, we've done that. And we're still not seeing the progress in some of those high level positions. So we know it's not you. We know it's not just a tweak. We have this awakening. Now, what do we do with that knowledge? Yeah, well, so the book... So it's broken into three parts. And the first part is, is exposing those lies. The second part is, is going through the history of what we've done. And then the third part is celebrating. And so I celebrate those women who, despite the odds, despite the obstacles, are achieving incredible things in their careers. Mm -hmm. Some people, just by acknowledging that what they've been told, you know, was kind of half truth, is in and of itself could be enough for that person, right? That's already liberating. Mm -hmm. So they, they've already had a liberating experience. Just to understand. Just to understand it. The, the way the world is, that is a victory in and of itself. Yes, just to say out loud that I'm enough. Now others, mm -hmm. you know, it may take the form of getting involved in a cause. It, it may be, you know, writing to your senator now and your congresswoman and saying, or man, saying pass this human infrastructure bill and make sure that family leave, paid family leave is in the bill. Make sure that, you know, provisions for child care, the universal pre-K and some of those other things that we know are going to, to make a world of difference for women, make sure those things are included in the bill. So, you know, people will have their own awakening experience. That was Ariva Martin in conversation with Sarah Fenske about Martin's new book, Awakening, Ladies, Leadership, and the Lies We've Been Told. We'll hear more after a quick break. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Jeremy Goodwin. This hour, we're listening to Sarah Fenske's conversation with lawyer, author, and St. Louis native Ariva Martin, recorded last Thursday before a live audience. They discussed Martin's new book, Awakening, Ladies, Leadership, and the Lies We've Been Told. I want to talk about one thing that is almost a leitmotif running through this book. It's, it's a theme that sort of just keeps coming up again and again, and that has to do with the Me Too movement. I mean, this was so galvanizing mm -hmm. for so many women, and yet for the women who decided to speak out about this, there was a great personal cost for many of them. And I'm wondering how you think about that calculation of when you have to sort of protect yourself and decide to swallow um, you know, just the terrible things that life puts in front of you versus saying, you know what, I'm going to come out swinging. I'm going to go public with what I know. Yeah, it's not an easy decision. So a lot of the legal work that I do, I've actually represented women who have been sexually harassed, have experienced, you know, sexual, uh, you know, assault, uh, sexual discrimination in the workplace. Uh, and many of them chose to have a conversation with a lawyer, but not file an actual lawsuit. Others mm. chose to file a lawsuit and enter into early settlement that included a 
private arbitration or mediation agreement. and Something where they can't later disclose what they know. Something that they can't disclose, something that the company can't talk about. And we saw that come up a lot in this Me Too era where there were prior complaints against a man, but those complaints were swept under the rug. You know, he wasn't reprimanded for them and they weren't made public. But what we have seen in the Me Too movement is the power in numbers. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes it just takes that one person to come forward and then you'll see others be empowered by that one person's testimony and then they start to share you know, you mentioned these non-disclosure agreements, and as a lawyer working on these cases, it sounds like this is something you have seen time and again. That has to be so frustrating for the part of you that's an activist and wants to see things change, that people are able to sweep that under the rug. Do you think that's changing now, that companies have a better sense of that's something that has to go if we want justice for, frankly, uh, the women in these situations as well as the men who have caused these problems? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's Great. not changing. Uh, you know, this, this country uh, likes to, uh, there's a lot of performative things that happen. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a big case happens in the media. There's, you know, wall-to-wall -wall coverage for a day, two, maybe three days. Uh, and then things have a way of, you know, settling down and going back to normal. Yeah. Uh, and so quite honestly, no, there hasn't been a huge shift in the way these cases are handled in the workplace. And still African-American women, women of color are disproportionately impacted by sexual harassment in the workplace and are least likely to speak up because we are uh, over indexed in low wage jobs and we are often the sole breadwinner of our families. So the risk of speaking up is too great. So oftentimes you don't see those women uh, coming forward. And if you think about a lot of the high profile cases, uh, Gretchen Carlson, these are often very high profile, well to do, mm -hmm. uh, women who have a lot of resources, a lot of support, and not that anyone likes losing a job, but they are typically better suited you know, they have a microphone. They have they, a microphone. They so, have a little more control over their yes. story. So Gretchen, you know, loses one job at, at Fox, and then she's you know can travel the country and give speeches, and you know, they have other ways. So that's not a bad thing, but that's just the reality of, of oftentimes who you see coming forward and telling their stories. So I have some questions from the audience. I got to ask my questions. I feel like now it's your turn. I'm going to start with a really good one from Erica. Erica writes, I have been called aggressive because I speak my mind. How do you handle men who can't handle an outspoken woman? Yeah, uh, that, that happens. And then <laughs> that if, happens, yes. <laughs> so and if you are a black woman, that aggressive can turn into uh, loud, angry black woman, you know, that, that racist trope that we are often referred, that often gets assigned to us, uh, that when we do speak our mind, when we do speak up, then there's something wrong with us. And, and I think, Erica, people have not heard enough from assertive women like you. And in this moment, as more of us are finding our voices and starting to use our voices, it's going to take time. We've got to be patient with uh, our other sex, <laughs> the men, uh, because a lot of them aren't accustomed to dealing with, whether it's professionally or personally, with assertive women. But you don't stop 
speaking your mind. You don't shrink to make someone else feel comfortable. So here's a question that I think is, is kind of the flip side almost um, here, and this is from Kim. Uh, she writes, women are often not supportive of other women and are often very critical of other women. And so, you know, there's the problem of men can't deal with women being aggressive. Sometimes women are out there striking each other down. Kim wants to know your thoughts on why, and then what could be the solution to this? Yeah, that's a really big question. Uh, and a lot of it's learned behavior. So a lot of how we treat people in the world is how we've been taught to treat people in the world. And the people that teach us, you know, there's a saying that hurt people hurt people. So a lot of the lessons that we're learning about how we treat people are coming from people who've been hurt themselves and they are hurting other people. So first of all, you know, I'm all about recognition, recognizing that that is the reality. Uh, and then I also am a firm believer in not confronting people, but talking to people, bringing mm -hmm. them into that awareness. Because oftentimes people will say, I didn't know that. I have a friend and, and she had a tendency to make little comments about things that I found to be undermining. But she's a good friend. So I just, I said, I wondered if she knows that what she is saying is hurtful to me. Mm -hmm. And so I just decided to have a conversation with her about it to say, I don't think you are trying to do this because we are really good friends. We do a lot together. We support each other. But when you say these things, this is the impact that it has on me. So sometimes it's just letting someone know that what they are doing is having that impact. And did on that you. work when you had that conversation? Yes. And it, it, we turned it into a joke. And so now, you know, it wasn't like a hundred percent change overnight. And if she'll say something, I'll say, remember we had that conversation. Mm. And she's like, okay, okay. So yes. Now that may offend someone else. Not to say again, you know, none of these solutions are going to work a hundred percent of the time in every situation, but uh, a part of finding our voices is being able to, to say to people, honestly, I'm not comfortable with how you're handling this. Or, or you said some things that made me a little uncomfortable. Here's a question from Trudy. Um, she writes, I am a first-year associate at a big corporate firm, <laughs> something I, I think you can identify with. Congratulations, Trudy. <laughs> what is your biggest piece of advice for navigating the competing mindsets of dealing with sexist micro-slash-macro aggressions, calling it out versus holding your tongue at work, especially how to react in the moment? That's so hard. Yeah, it is, because in the moment, sometimes you could say something that might literally get you escorted out the door with security, right? <laughs> so if you <laughs> really said what you were thinking you, you may not survive it's emotional intelligence it, it's figuring out uh it definitely though is not being a doormat and I think those days you know for women we were taught and told to not say anything to let it go uh you know to he didn't mean it and and I give an example in the book with uh my brother uh, one of my brothers and I have this company together and I started the company I'm the CEO of the company he works for me and we were being mentored by this older white guy and on Zoom, these mentoring meetings. And the guy, the, the mentor, would never, ever address me. He would never call my name. He would never ask my opinion. But throughout these mentor sessions, he would call my brother's name. I mean, no fewer than 10 times during the call. Direct every comment to him. If he said something, oh, that's a great idea. He would acknowledge it. He would praise it. So one day I told my brother, I said, do you notice that that guy never, ever acknowledges me? He has made me completely invisible. 
And my brother did what a lot of men do. He says, you're imagining that. <laughs> he, that man ain't thinking about you. That, you. You just making that up. He didn't call my name. And I s said to my brother, my brother's name is Rodney. I said, Rodney, first of all, I'm not crazy. So <laughs> stop with the gaslighting. I know when I'm being ignored. I know when I'm being marginalized. And he's doing that. I said, I want you to do me a favor. Next time we're in a meeting, just make a mental note of how many times he uses your name and how many times he will not and does not use my name. So after the call, and it happened again, he called Rodney's name his usual 10 times, praised him for everything. And even to the point now, it's making Rodney uncomfortable because now he's conscious of it. So he started saying things like, well, you know, Ariva started the company. So he's trying to inject in there, like, you know, Ariva's the CEO. And didn't matter to the guy. So even he as still Rod wasn't taking those cues. No, this guy was determined that I just did not exist. And so I had to make a choice. Do you say something? Do you not say something? So I ended the relationship. I said, I'm not getting on a call with him anymore. You can't mentor me if you don't respect me enough to even see me. So I, you, you can't give me any advice. There's no advice that I, I want to receive from you. So I told Rodney, I said, we're going to terminate the relationship with him. I could have said something to him. I could have said, hello, hey, you know, I'm here too. Uh, and as you become more uh, mature in your career, in your position, you'll figure out what's the best way to handle those situations. Sometimes it's to terminate the relationship. Sometimes it's to say something openly to that person. Uh, but I, I think the, the thing you want to do is acknowledge it and don't allow yourself to think that there's something wrong with you or that you've done something to merit that kind of behavior. I think it's interesting you you pulled your brother in not just because he needed to see this for himself but also it was it was good to have a witness yeah and I wonder if that's you know for a young woman at a, at a law firm where I imagine probably very few people look like her if there's you know find your allies and and find ways to find you know, just confirm you're not crazy <laughs> and you know find those mentors and this you're not the first person that this has happened to the fact that this is happening to you means that this is probably systemic to that organization. And you definitely want to find those people that have navigated those, you know, those waters before and find out how they did it. How were they successful in that environment? Because each environment is different. You know, you may work in an environment where, you know, a woman may tell you, you need to say something to him to set the record straight right now. You know, mm -hmm. it just may be that that's the best thing to do. So here's a question from Ron. He asks, is psychic trauma real for black women? Yeah, it's real. Yeah. First of all, there's psychological studies that show all those microaggressions that we experience have a profound impact on our emotional well-being. And the more we internalize them, the more we, you know, suppress them, the more uh, people have physical manifestations of it. Uh, a lot of people experience, you know, serious mental health challenges as a result of that. And you'll hear uh, a woman that I frequently have on my show, uh, Dr. Breland Noble, a psychologist who deals specifically with black women and trauma, talks a lot about how little attention is paid to that trauma. Uh, but racial trauma is very real. Well, Ariva Martin, I want to thank you so much for joining us, answering all of our questions tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. This episode was produced by Emily Woodbury with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio.
Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.